0: You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. Morning. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm excited to continue our summer teaching th- series through the Sermon on the Mount. Today we are looking at Jesus' vision for your sexuality. And uh, it's going to be another heavy one. And so I want to begin today with three disclaimers. Disclaimer number one. Today's sermon is rated PG-13. Some content may not be suitable for children under the age of 13. And uh, not rated R. I'm going to try my best not to be Graphic or overly descriptive, I promise I don't have any visual aids up here <laughs> on stage or anything like that, but generally we, uh, you know, we love having kids in here, even if uh, your child starts crying in the middle of the sermon, I promise I don't mind, anything like that. Uh, but today would be a good day if, uh, if you wanna have your, your kid uh, use the awesome family ministries that we have, we have those available downstairs. Uh, second disclaimer. Kingdom sexuality is not the same thing as toxic purity culture. There's kind of a phrase, it's a little bit of a buzzword, maybe in churches, toxic purity culture, which I just want to acknowledge is an actual thing. But kingdom sexuality or pursuing purity is not necessarily toxic purity culture. Here's some hallmark characteristics of toxic purity culture. Maybe you grew up in a church like this. Maybe you encountered some of these things. Uh, typically, it's characterized by uh, a church or a religious group uh, with unrealistic expectations. No premarital eye contact. <laughs> you know, wait until you're married to hold hands. Some of those kind of like really, really strict, almost legalistic expectations, Uh, public accountability and shame, come on up front and let's let's tell the whole church why you got pregnant before you got married, right, some of those, like, these are actual things that happen in certain uh, contexts, Uh, tends to be, you know, kind of elevates sexual immorality and those kind of sins as, like, the unforgivable sins, and, like, they're way worse than other ones, like, those kinds of things, Uh, sometimes there's even gender hypocrisy a little bit, where girls are responsible for uh, purity for guys, and there's kind of like special shame that goes on girls for dress codes, that sort of thing. And then overall, one hallmark is that toxic purity culture really characterizes sex in and of itself as evil. It paints sex as just wrong and evil and, and, and bad in and of itself, which is, as we'll see today, is not God's vision for kingdom sexuality. That all of that being said, so if you experienced that growing up or in youth group, I'm, uh, I'm sorry that you experienced that. That being said, calling something a sin or sexual immorality in and of itself is not necessarily any of those things. Does that make sense? So we can hold true to Jesus's very high standards for sexuality without calling it toxic purity culture. And it, one of the trends I see on the other side is people who did grow up in those circles and they carry around a lot of pain and church hurt because of it. Preaching today, I do not believe to be toxic purity culture. I believe it to be clear teachings from the mouth of the Son of God. The third disclaimer is in the same sermon that Jesus says all of these difficult things we get in chapter five. In chapter seven, the very same sermon, Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. And this informs us that Jesus is setting very high ethical standards for God's kingdom people. And we see that. And it's heavy and it's challenging. But the point for this is not to load you up with ammunition to judge your neighbor. It's not to load you up with, with hatred or self-righteousness. It's actually to force us into a position where we examine ourselves. Look at the log in your own eye. So today, And and that's one of the things that we do as people is we try to get out of being guilty by thinking through teachings like the one today and and how everyone else is more guilty than we are or they're worse off than we are. And we judge, and by doing so, we actually avoid what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in convicting ourselves. So today is about self-examination, not ammunition. Does that make sense? Not ammunition. With those disclaimers, let's jump into... Jesus' is teaching, and I'm short on time, a lot of content. We're actually looking at the next two sayings of Jesus, one on uh, lust and one on divorce, so it's gonna be a lot of content today. I'm gonna be talking fast. I promise we'll get to the grace and the gospel at the end. <laughs> Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here we have the next commandment. This is a quotation from Exodus chapter 20. It's the commandment that comes immediately following. Jews were concerned about adultery. They knew it was wrong. It's kind of the obvious, evident evil. It's marital unfaithfulness. But primarily, most rabbis would be concerned about adultery not for the sexual impurity but because it's stealing. Does that make sense? Well, you don't want to commit adultery because you're stealing someone else's spouse, you know? And that's a problem, you don't want to steal. Jesus, obviously, is more concerned with the impurity aspect of, adu- uh, of, of adultery than he is with stealing. Now, we know that stealing is also wrong, and you know, that's, that is also a reason why you shouldn't commit adultery. Uh, But what we have to remember about sex and marriage is that God created both of those things. And that means that God actually can set the rules on what is permissible and what is not. Uh, And yet, for so many people, we kind of think, you know, what does God have to say about this? This is kind of for me to decide. This is my thing, this is, you know, my parameters. Levi Lesko, Pastor Levi Lesko, says it really well, sex is God-given, which means it should be god Governed. I think that's really helpful. Uh, All teaching around kingdom sexuality goes back to Genesis chapter 2, God creating male and female for this one flesh marriage, this one flesh union. And the reason why this topic, sex, sexuality, and marriage, is so important is not because sex is evil, but because sex is powerful. I'm going to show you a picture uh, from a youth event. In youth ministry, uh, I used to preach. Every February, a month-long series on sex, dating, and marriage. And uh, this is from an event in Portland. So think about just like that cultural context. Uh, I was flown out to do a talk to a bunch of Portland students, high schoolers, about sexuality. And uh, I had a blender on stage. And uh, the reason why I use that, it's my favorite out of all the sermons I've ever done to students about sexuality is my favorite visual, I, I said I didn't have a visual aid, technically that's true, but I have a picture of one, <laughs> is, uh, is a blender. Because a blender, we know, is a blender a weapon? No, it's not, As a blender, like when you think of like something that's super dangerous, do we think of like smoothies, you know? No, we don't. But a blender is incredibly powerful, and all powerful things need instructions. All powerful things need instructions. And so I, I explain that. I actually read, not from the Bible, I read from the instruction manual for a Vitamix. And I'm like reading, like it says you're not supposed to remove the lid while operating, and don't touch the blades because they're really sharp. And then I say, so now having read all of that, what if I just broke the rules? And I have it plugged in on stage, and I take the lid off, and I start like pressing the button. And kids are like, what are you doing, right? You'd think I was you know, waving a, a gun in the air, and then what I do is I stick my hand, in, and I know, because like, you know, I'm like two inches away from the blade, but they can't see it, right? So I'm sticking my hand like, ah, this is crazy, and this kid, no joke, from the back of the room, screams, have you lost your mind? <laughs> and uh, that's the second best visual aid I've ever used in a sermon is the blender. Powerful things need instructions. That makes sense, right? God is not silent when it comes to sexuality in the Bible. There are so many teachings, Old Testament and New Testament, when it comes to parameters, boundaries, keep the lid on while operating, don't touch the blade. Like There's very clear instructions in Scripture, not because sex is evil and we should view it as evil, but because sex is incredibly powerful would you believe me if i told you it was more powerful than a blender <laughs> so what is god's design for sexuality hebrews 13:4 gives a great summary verse let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled or we could say let the marriage bed be kept holy for god will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous <laughs> Very clear biblical teaching, time and time again, here's the principle, sex was designed for marriage. That is the only context that sex is designed by God for. And marriage, biblically speaking, time and time again, is defined as a one flesh, lifelong covenant union between a man and a woman. It's gonna come up in a little bit, but that's clear biblical teaching. And I know it's Pride Month, I promise you, this is not a reactionary sermon, this is a, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. That is, we hold to the historically Christian perspective of marriage. So sex is designed for marriage, marriage is a lifelong covenant union between a man and a woman. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about it like this. The inventor, notice the language, the inventor of the human machine, Who gets to write the instruction manual for a blender? The person who made it, the inventor. Who gets to write the instruction manual for sex? God does. The inventor of the human machine was telling us that its two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on a sexual level, but totally combined the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which was intended to go along with it and make up the total union. I'd say that's exactly in line with the point that Jesus is trying to make. It's not just you, know, you shall not commit adultery and that is the only sexual sin. That he's talking about the holiness, the sanctity. Uh, in the same way that you shall not murder, it has to do with the sanctity of life. You shall not commit adultery, it has to do with the sanctity of marriage. This is a holy covenant union that God created in the early chapters of Genesis. It's one of the first things that God blessed in all of human history. And so there's two clear uh, sins that go along with that that, that, that show up in the text. The first one is adultery, and the second one is lust. Adultery, we already talked about it. It's marital unfaithfulness, cheating on your spouse, and it's obvious, and it's evident, right? And then the second one, similar to Jesus' teaching on anger and murder, is not so evident. How can you tell if someone is lusting, right? Only God can see that. There's this internal sin behind the sin. There's this heart posture. Uh, and it's the, it's the thoughts of sexual immorality. It's the fantasies. And it's hidden, but it's known to God. And Jesus, once again, is giving us a range. You have the obvious and the evident, right? And, and no one can really debate that this one is wrong. And then you have this even thinking about it, even you know, the, the posture of your heart. Now, we have to clarify, when it comes to lust, is this idea of what's the difference between a temptation and a sin? Have you ever wondered that? You know, did I accidentally just lust, right? And you're trying to fight it, and this is an incredibly sensitive topic, I understand, but, but to me, the illustration I like to use is we have a no soliciting sign on our house. Maybe you don't, that's totally fine. We get a ton of solicitors at our house. Even with that no soliciting sign, it's like, seriously, like people knocking on the door. Do you need pest control? And like the dogs bark, and it wakes up my children. And I'm like, please. There's a reason why we have this sign. Anyways, you can do everything you want to try and prevent someone from being a door-to-door salesman and knocking on your door, but you cannot fully prevent that from happening, can you? However, you can refuse to open the door. You can open the door find out it's not your neighbor, it's someone who's trying to sell something and say, I'm sorry, and close the door, or you can open the door and say, come on in, and entertain them. And it's the same way, I believe, with when it comes to desires or thoughts, or sometimes even temptations, is you cannot always prevent that post from showing up on your social media feed. You cannot always, like, I thought I read the reviews for this movie, and you're in the theater, and you're like, what, you know? You can't always prevent even a thought or a temptation from coming into your mind, or a glance, but you can entertain it, you can welcome it, you can dwell on it. The word that Jesus uses for look is the Greek word blepo, and it means to look intently, to study something. So when Jesus is talking about looking at a woman with lust, or for looking at a man with lust, right, either way, when Jesus is talking about that, he's not talking about a passing thought, he's talking about a fixation or entertaining yeah, does that help clarify that? So what else, just for clarity, I'm gonna be crystal clear today, what else fits within that range? If you have adultery on the one hand and lust on the other end, what else fits within that range of sexual sins? Because for some people you might say, well, I haven't committed adultery and I feel like my thought life is pretty good. Well, what else fits within that? Let's run through a few: premarital sex. This is a very common culturally acceptable sin, even within many church circles. It's just, well, we plan on getting married eventually, but we just wanna live together for a few years and sleep together for a few years beforehand to make sure we are compatible. That is sexual immorality. And if you're in one of those situations, not to heap guilt or shame on you, but scripturally speaking, if you wanna embody this kingdom sexual ethic, you have two options. Stop sleeping together, probably move out if if you're cohabitating, Uh, and get married down the road, or get married like tomorrow. Those are your two options. Uh, Hookup culture. Hookup culture essentially views sex as a recreational activity for adults. You're a kid, you go bowling, you have watermelon fights, you're an adult, you go and sleep around, right? It's hookup culture. That is like the definition of isolating the sexual union apart from the holiness of the marriage covenant. And that is a sexual sin. Uh, another one is homosexuality. This one I talked about. This goes against God's definition, which Jesus affirms in Matthew 19. We'll look at it in a few moments. That marriage is designed by God as a covenant relationship between a, a man and a woman. Once again, I just want to reiterate those, those comments about lust. Is there's a difference between, you know, we could say practicing homosexuality, acting on it. Or experiencing same sex attraction, or being, you know, just saying, I, I'm a gay Christian, something like that. The reality is, there are a few options for someone who uh, identifies as gay and experiences that. Lifelong celibacy is one. I know this isn't a comfortable thing to talk about, right? Lifelong celibacy is one. Uh, for some, they opt towards mixed orientation marriages. I don't know if I would necessarily advise that, but that's where one spouse is straight and the other one is gay, and they just acknowledge. Listen, I know I don't experience a natural attraction towards this person, but I do want to have lifelong companionship in a family. It does get messy when that family, then, you know, if there is unfaithfulness later on down the road and there's kids involved. So that's why that's a little bit uh, more sketchy there. Or for some people, uh, God actually just does a work in changing the desires of their heart and like to leave that on the table. It doesn't happen for everyone. And so we can't just advise that 100% of the time, but it it does happen. And I, I like, I have. Uh, students that, that were in youth ministry who've experienced that same kind of thing. So, uh, the next one is pornography. That's watching sex, watching people have sex. Uh, it doesn't have to necessarily just be internet pornography. It could be TV shows uh, or movies, incredibly pornographic. Also, books. Like there, it's not even just watching. It's like things that are erotic, that sort of thing. Uh, it's I, I, once again isolating sexual pleasure outside of marriage. Masturbation goes right alongside that is sexual gratification turned inward, sex with yourself, essentially. And then there's the list, unfortunately the long list, of illegal sexual activities, which I don't think we need to go over every single one, but our culture is incredibly permissive, right? The sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s. And if our culture even has laws against things like prostitution, human trafficking, Bestiology, bestiality, you name it, right? There's a, lot, there's a long list, then we can f- safely assume that it's also uh, sexual immorality in God's eyes. Culture says, here's the cultural standard for sexuality, as long as there's consent. Consent is the key word, uh, right? So in the world's eyes, things like rape and sexual abuse are you know, clearly evident evil and uh, Jesus is right along with that. But the word consent there is kind of the only guideline. And even that guideline sometimes is blurred, if we were to be honest. But clear biblical teaching affirmed by Jesus. Is Jesus being more permissive in the Sermon on the Mount or more strict? He's being clearly more strict than even the Jewish understanding towards sexuality. And we have to own that as followers of Jesus, if you want to be obedient to Christ and embody his kingdom sexual ethic. And the point of this, in running through that list, once again, is it ammunition for you to use against someone? No, it's self-examination. And it's at this point that we realize we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If even the thoughts and desires of your heart are under the microscope, who of us is righteous, right? That's what Jesus is getting at. So what do we do about sexual immorality. Well, if you had trouble with the last couple of verses, let's look at the next two. <laughs> and if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Extremely strict teaching on sexual immorality. Jesus is obviously, just for clarity, using hyperbolic language. These are extreme, exaggerating examples. He does not expect you to gouge out, to actually gouge out your eyes or cut off your hands. Uh, Origen was an early church leader who castrated himself because he overliteralized this text. And the irony of that is even if you gouge out your eyes, you still have your mind. You can still imagine something in your, does that make sense? And uh, so we have to be clear about that. D.A. Carson says it like this. Here's what Jesus is getting at. We need to take, like this is an extreme thing. We need to take extreme measures to fight against sexual immorality, because it's powerful. It's gonna hurt you, it's gonna hurt people around you. Even if you think it's completely secret, you know, people who have kind of those secret porn, uh, porn addictions, those sorts of, well, no one's getting hurt. I promise you, it's doing damage to your soul. Not to mention that the porn industry is built on the back of the human trafficking industry. Did you realize this? Underage, primarily women, but, but men as well. And it's just heartbreaking and devastating. Uh, D.A. Carson says it like this. All sin, not least sexual sin, begins with the imagination. Therefore, what feeds the imagination is of maximum importance. That's what Jesus is saying. So what goes, and we are so flippant in what we watch and what we consume, and uh, we don't want to become legalistic or self-righteous because, once again, it's, it's hard for me to say, no one in my church is going to watch this TV show, because it, it is a little bit different, right, for each person on, on what is a trigger for you. At the same time, we need to be very cautious about what feeds your imagination, if Jesus is saying gouge out your eye, chop off your hand, he's saying go to the extreme. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.18, another hallmark passage, you can read through the whole uh, chapter, for, uh, chapter 6 uh, on 1 Corinthians, he says flee sexual immorality. So in that blender example, is it like get as close as you can to the blade without touching it? Because that blade is going really fast and it's really hard to see exactly where the blade is. Leave the lid on. Back away from the blender. Use one of those little mashing sticks if you need to make a smoothie. Get as far away from it. Flee sexual immorality. So what is it gonna take for us, church? Here's the practice. Cut lust out of your life. What's it gonna take? That's what Jesus' point is. It's not literally cut your hand, cut your eye. The eye is The primary mode for lust, for that visualization piece, the hand is the primary mode, where uh, the beginning of adultery, right? Physical touch, all of that sort of stuff, right? So that's why Jesus uses those two things. Sex is a imaginative and a physical thing. What's it gonna take for you? Examine yourself to cut lust out of your life. Are there apps on your phone? Right now, before the end of service, you need to delete. Delete it, delete it. Are there relationships? Is there a relationship in your life that you run to? Is it toxic? Do you need to break up with a person? Do you need to put boundaries on your dating relationship? Not no premarital eye contact, but you need to avoid certain situations with with that person. Uh, Are there certain TV shows or movies that you're dying to see the season finale, but you know every time you watch it, you go to sleep that night with lust in your heart? and you just have to say, I guess I'll have to give up this movie. Guess what? Jesus calls us to take up your cross and follow him. You cannot watch one movie. You can. Are there certain social media accounts that you need to unfollow? You're like, this is just not good. And I know we were friends in high school, but this person just posts like the most ridiculously overt semi-pornographic content every single day. You can still be friends with that person without following them on social media. Is there accountability that you need in your life, a men's group, a women's group? Is there accountability software you need to download on your computer or on your phone? Or in some just severe cases, you need to sign up for Celebrate Recovery, which not only has alcohol and drug recovery programs, but sex addiction recovery programs as well. Whatever you cut out for the sake of cutting out lust, I wanna assure you it is worth it. Jesus here, refers to the negative. It'd be better to cut that stuff out than to, to, to keep worshiping sex or sexual pleasure or gratification than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's Jesus' teaching here very clearly. But earlier, he says it in the positive sense when he talks about persecution, because let me assure you, you will not get popular if you embody Jesus' sexual ethic. I can just tell you that from my experience trying to follow Jesus in high school. You will not be popular. You may even get resistance, people may even call you names. People may assume that you're self-righteous and judgmental, even if you're trying your best not to be. You're just trying to embody what Jesus has called you to in the area of sex. Someone might break up with you because they, they have expectations for you in a dating relationship that you're wanting to hold the line and you're not willing to, you're not willing to compromise. But check this out. In Matthew 5, 12, Jesus says, the the positive side is rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. In Matthew 6, Jesus talks about righteousness being seen by God, even when it's not seen by people. And he says, your heavenly father rewards even what is done in secret. And I can tell you, I can tell you that, that you won't be popular, but you will be rewarded and favored by God. And God blesses those who are faithful to him in these ways. That's lust. Let's continue through the second saying of Jesus about divorce. Matthew 5, 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, secret word porneia), makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I've got about four minutes to cover this. Uh, The Old Testament teaching, if you're taking notes that Jesus is referencing, is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. It's a situation that Moses gives where it's this idea of uh, a woman is married to a man, he divorces her, she marries another man, he divorces her, and then the the principle is let her not go back to the first husband and remarry the first husband. Essentially, the the premise behind this teaching about divorce is, yes, there's permission, not a command... Divorce. There's there's a permission for divorce, but not a flippant divorce. That's the that's the teaching in Deuteronomy 24. Not a casual, like, you know, if it doesn't work out, just get divorced and remarry someone else. Because we have to understand that sex is this physical one-flesh covenant that two people are making, and that's actually beyond even any certificate that you get from the city of Boise, in God's eyes. That's like this binding union. That's the thing that's, uh, that certifies the covenant. By the time of Jesus in the first century, there were two, school, two rabbinic schools, and each had a distinct teaching on diver- divorce. The first one was the school of Hillel, and they, uh, they practiced divorce for any cause. So, and, and generally, these, uh, these schools of thought favored the males, so the husband would primarily be the one issuing a certificate of divorce. So uh, even t- to the degree where you find another woman that's more attractive, divorce your wife. Of course, right? Divorce her. Oh, she burned your dinner last night. Divorce your wife. And it's, that's literally what the teaching for the school of Hillel was. This is very similar to the common practice of divorce in America today. We might not say they burnt my dinner or I found someone that's more attractive But those may in fact be real reasons that people use. We call it irreconcilable differences. We just can't seem to get along. We fell out of love. The spark wasn't there. Call it what you will. It's very similar, the school of Hillel to the teaching of divorce. Uh, not the teaching of divorce, but the popular accepted practice of divorce, which is not all that different within the church, the American church than it is. It is a little bit different, but not all that different than it is in the culture. Then there was the school of Shammai. School of Shammai taught divorce was only for sexual immorality or immodesty. So someone cheats on you, marital unfaithfulness, you're free to get divorced, or even if they're dressing provocatively. You're scrolling through their social media, and they're getting lots of those like wide-eye, fire emoji comments, you're like, what is this? Jesus, and that was the more strict school, obviously, Jesus, in his teaching, is even more strict than the strictest Jewish teaching on divorce of his day. We have to wrestle with this. He's more strict than Shammai. He doesn't even give immodesty as permission to get divorced. He only gives one permission, the teaching of Jesus. And it's because Jesus has such a high view. It's not because Jesus is mean towards divorce. He has such a high view of the holiness and the sanctity of the marriage covenant relationship. Matthew 19, if you can, you can study it more later, there's another teaching from Jesus on divorce, a separate occasion from the Sermon on the Mount, but this is what he says. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. He's not saying, on paper, they're married. He's saying, in, in flesh, they're married. Gen, he's quoting from Genesis chapter two. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Andy Stanley says, what God has made one, let us not un-one. You can't un-... It's like Play-Doh that you've mashed all together. Have you ever tried to do that? Two different colors of Play-Doh and they're mashed all... That's another visual aid, sorry. But it's, you can't... You can chop it in half, but there's bits of each one that are still on the other one. It's, it, sex is not just flesh deep, it's deeper, it's soul deep. Jesus, and then they said to him, why then did Moses command one, to, notice the language, did Moses command people to get divorced? No, they, he didn't. To give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. He said, because of your hardness of heart. Moses, not, not commanded, everyone say it, Moses Allowed, so there's an allowance in the law for you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So divorce is not God's intention for marriage. Here's God's intention for marriage. Marriage is for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. Every single couple that I officiate a wedding, I read them this statement, and I say, are you ready for that with this person? And if they say no, I am not officiating that wedding. In the wedding ceremony, every single wedding ceremony I officiate, I read this statement. And I say, one last, one last, are you ready for this statement? Marriage, other than your commitment to Christ, marriage is the most holy, most binding, highest covenant relationship that two people can enter into. It is the most intimate and deep and personal and connected and two different colors of Plato mashed together kind of relationship that a human being can enter into. Marriage is covenant, not casual. Marriage is covenant, everyone say covenant. It's covenant, not casual and we need to treat it as such. There's a second scriptural exception that you see in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, and that's diversion, uh, desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Once again, you can read through the whole chapter there if you wanna get the context, but this is what Paul says. But if the unbelieving partner separates, so two people get married and one spouse becomes a Christian and the other one hates that, he says, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So as far as the New Testament goes, There are literally only two exceptions for divorce. It's if your your spouse says, I'm leaving, I don't care what you say, and they force you to get divorced, or if the other person is unfaithful. Now, could there be other exceptions? And I would, like Josh's commentary here, so this is not scripture, possibly physical abuse, where your actual life is in danger. For, whether you get divorced or not, if you're in a marriage like that, a situation like that, you have to get help. You have to get to safety, get your kids to safety. You can be separated and, and not divorced. Like you can work out the paperwork later, right? To be really clear about that. But any other exception or allowance for divorce other than those two goes beyond the bounds of the New Testament. And we just have to acknowledge that. And that begs the natural question, what if I'm divorced and remarried? Because we have plenty of people who are in that situation in this room, in the church. Grant Osborne says it like this. It is not the unpardonable sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. And it means that the present act and consummation of remarriage is adulterous. And the couple should admit that and begin to live by God's standards. And it's the, that's really the same principle that we see in Deuteronomy 24, If someone has been divorced maybe for unjust causes or beyond biblical bounds, without one of those two exceptions, and, and gotten remarried, just own it, but you don't live like every day committing adultery. That's the principle, is just own it. You can repent, God can fully forgive you from that, and you just live in your new marriage and be committed to that new spouse. And this is where the idea of grace comes in. Jesus embodies grace and mercy and forgiveness. And we don't see much of that in the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is hard hitting, it's fast, it's clear. But you look at Jesus's life and he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was someone who had no one on his list of untouchables. He would go and he would associate and he would speak with people who society would look at and they were too dirty for them, they weren't too dirty for Jesus. Martin Lloyd Jones says it best. Even adultery, even let's say the worst, you know, the word on the list of sins is not the unforgivable sin. It is a terrible sin, but but God forbid that there should be anyone, anyone in this room that feels he or she has sinned himself or herself out of the love of God or outside his kingdom because of adultery. No. If you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven, and I assure you of pardon. I hope you hear those words, not even from me, but from Martin Lloyd-Jones, just this boss preacher. I assure you of pardon. If you're genuine, hear it from the apostle John in First John chapter 1. you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of your sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But hear the words of the Lord, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. God can forgive you and wash you and make you clean from anything that you've done, from anything that you've done. And that's why I, I love the ceremony of baptism that Jesus gave us. There's so much power in it because it's a washing. It's a washing, and if we're maybe you've been carrying around guilt and shame, and I would say this to you if you've never received the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on the cross for your guilt and shame. He's not trying to hold your guilt and shame over your head. He died for you. He loves you. He has grace. He has mercy for you, and this act that Jesus gave us to receive that gospel and respond in faith is to go under the water and just feel clean coming up out of it. There's nothing magic about the water. There's no like, soap that you need to even use. It's God's power, and it's God's work. But there's something so significant about knowing that God can wash any sin away, sexual sin or otherwise. And so we're gonna, we're gonna end today by actually watching Jesus embody this. Uh, we're gonna watch a Vantage video. Uh, it's the story of the sinful woman from Luke chapter seven. It's one of the many times that Jesus interacts with someone who is caught up in sexual immorality. And it's told through the lens of Mary Magdalene as if she is the sinful woman from Luke seven. It's possible that she actually was, but not verified in scripture, so just wanna make that clear. But as you watch this video, maybe picture yourself living out this story.
1: you can say I've always been a daddy's girl. Ever since I was a child, all I wanted to do was catch my father's eye or just hear him say, I love you. <laughs> Sometimes I would purposely like get in trouble or pick fights just to like get his attention. The problem is my dad, he never wanted a girl and I can't really blame him, because girls around here are no better than property. Something to keep you warm at night, something that makes meals. and that's about it. (laughs) And after a while, you start to feel like something's wrong with you. I don't know, like I was something to be ashamed of. So instead of uh, growing up, all the trips we would have gone on together, and no matter how hard I tried, I just, I could not be what he wanted me to be. And I just kind of got to the point where I was like, whatever, you know, if I can't win this man's love and affection, I'll go find it somewhere else. And. Pretty early on, I discovered that if I wore my clothes a certain way, I could catch men's eyes. I would flirt with them and they would say all these nice things to me and it felt good. And so I made a living out of it. Men would come and see me when they were lonely or when they were fighting with their wives. and for a moment, I was the hero, you know, I was like the w- But <laughs> no matter how many men walked through my doors, I always felt empty again when they left. I mean, once they were finished with me, they didn't really have any more nice things to say. And I just started to think there were no good men left in the world. <laughs> But then I started hearing rumors about a different kind of man, some guy from Galilee who had been traveling around healing people and teaching. And it wasn't really his radical teachings about loving others and loving your enemies that caught my attention. I heard Jesus had women disciples. And No one, no one had women disciples, okay? I mean, uh, people in his position weren't even supposed to speak directly to women. And yet Jesus had female followers. All my life, I have felt invisible. Because the whole world, even my own father... Convinced me that I wasn't valuable because I was born a girl. But this Jesus guy, he was different. He had to be different. I had to meet this mysterious man. And one day my opportunity came. So word got out that Jesus had been traveling through a nearby town and he was invited to dinner. Jesus was going to be the guest of honor at Simon the Pharisee's house. I remember arriving in the courtyard, this beautiful, beautiful home. There was this Lovely table, and there were couches all around. And you know, Simon and his friends are lounging on the furniture and just being prestigious and drawing attention to themselves. And I was just like, Why am I here? I don't belong here. (laughs) And then, right when I was really wanting to leave, people started like whispering around me. And then this gap formed in the crowd. And in walks Jesus. And it was really strange because he didn't make a scene. He just slipped in quietly and sat down. And what was even stranger was Simon's reaction to Jesus. The host is... It's, it's supposed to, you know, anoint his head with oil, or or order a servant to wash his feet. But Simon, he didn't. He didn't do anything. He didn't even stand up to greet him. I don't know. Something just started to boil inside of me. This rabbi was a a great man. And then the cool part is that he wasn't using his his greatness or his title for his own advantage. He would lift up other people. Not just any people, but like, you know, those people who had little to no value in everyone else's eyes. The people that you kind of just walk past and don't want to notice. (laughs) People like me. I couldn't believe that this important man was being treated with blatant indifference. It really bothered me. Someone needed to greet him properly. (laughs) And then I don't know what came over me, but I rushed toward Jesus. And everyone at the table, dead silent. And I fell to his feet and then (laughs) realized I had no oil to anoint him with. I had nothing to offer him. And so I'm embarrassed, fumbling through my pockets to try to find something, anything. And I come across this tiny jar and uh, I have been saving for nearly a year for this perfume, right? But it didn't matter. And I couldn't reach his head to annoy him, So I I just poured the perfume onto his feet. And um, the reality of what I was doing started to sink in. And I can only imagine what Simon and the others thought of this spectacle. They knew me they knew what i did for a living i mean i was just a piece of trash in their eyes i just i just broke and my my tears started to fall onto his feet and I remember trying to wipe them off with my hair. And at that point, I didn't, I didn't care. I didn't care what anyone thought of me anymore. And then for the first time that night, Jesus spoke. And he said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. And yet this woman has wet my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You didn't put oil on my head, but this woman has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And then I remember he he lifted my head up gently, and he looked right into my eyes. And he said, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. The way he was looking at me was like, um the way I had always wished my father had looked at me. I guess you could say I've always been a daddy's girl. (laughs) Because ever since I was a child, it's literally all I wanted to do was catch my father's eye and hear him say, I love you. finally (laughs) have. Jesus saw value in me where I didn't see value in myself, and he gave me worth where others had taken it away. I discovered my worth at the feet of Jesus, and I promise that you can too.
0: for tuning in to the hill city church podcast you can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org follow us on instagram and facebook at hill city boise we hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow jesus with everything